You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Uh, welcome to everybody who's here. Uh, good to see everyone and glad that you could be here Nice to be able to fellowship together uh, in this way. Please turn to John chapter 10. Gospel of John chapter 10 is where we'll begin. But first this. A shepherd was herding his flock in a remote pasture when suddenly a brand new Lexus convertible appeared out of a cloud of dust. The driver, a young man in an Armani suit, Gucci shoes, Ray-Ban sunglasses, and Ralph Lauren tie, leaned out the window and asked the shepherd, If I tell you exactly how many sheep you have in your flock, will you give me one? The shepherd looked at the man and looked at his peacefully grazing flock and calmly answered, Sure. The young man parked his car, whipped out his laptop, and connected it to a cell phone. Then he surfed to a NASA page on the internet where he called up a GPS satellite navigation system, scanned the area, and then opened up a database and an Excel spreadsheet with complex formulas. He sent an email on his BlackBerry and after a few minutes received a response. Finally, he printed out a 150-page report on his high-tech miniaturized printer, then turned to the shepherd and said, You have exactly 1,586 sheep. That's correct, said the shepherd. Take one of the sheep. He watches the young man select one of the animals and bundle it into his car. Then the shepherd says, If I can tell you exactly what your business is, will you give me back my sheep? Okay, why not? said the young man. Well, clearly you work for the government, said the shepherd. That's correct, said the young man. How did you guess that? No guessing required, answered the shepherd. You turned up here, although nobody called you. You wanted to get paid for an answer I already knew to a question I never asked. And you don't know anything about my business. Now, would you give me back my dog? <laughs> I love that one. Now, there are two reasons I tell you that, okay? Two reasons I tell you that. First, I like to, often I like to start the sermon time with a joke or with something funny because I think it never hurts us to laugh. But second, the content of the joke, the basic subject matter, gets us to start thinking about the content of today's message. Okay? As we study John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21 today, we're going to be talking about Jesus as the good shepherd and as the door to the sheepfold. But before we do that, we need to consider something else. Who can quote Psalm 23.1 for me? Psalm 23, 1. I know somebody has it. Oh, come on. You have it? No, you're just, yeah. Okay, go ahead. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, I know a lot of you knew that one, right? Okay. But, and that's, that's great. Okay, the, 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 Lord, the Lord is your very own personal shepherd, right? If we stop to think about what that means, our first thought might be, that the Lord is going to provide for us. And the Lord is going to take care of us. And the Lord is going to protect us. But do you suppose there's another thought that ought to come to us before that one? How about this? If the Lord is your shepherd, what does that make you? Yeah, makes you a sheep. 
Uh, there's a preacher and author from Chicago named James McDonald who makes these observations about three ways in which people are like sheep relative to God. Okay? And he says this. This is all a quote from James McDonald here. First, he says, we are prone to follow. Put a flock of sheep in the middle of a lush green pasture. Turn your back on them for five minutes and they're poking their noses under the fence. They're looking for another place to go. Human beings have a herding instinct also. We wear what our friends are wearing. We talk like everyone around us is talking. We go where everyone else else is going. And we're so trusting, particularly when it comes to taking bad advice. Sheep are like that, going astray while following others who are wandering. Second, we're like sheep because we're vulnerable. And he says uh, in, in this quote of his, he says, I remember going to my grandpa's farm when I was little and noticing how most farm animals get along pretty well without human supervision. Chickens, horses, pigs, and cows can handle their surroundings on their own, not sheep. They get a shepherd because they need one. Like sheep, we are unstable, weak, and require, require constant care and protection. Third, and I'm sure no one here identifies with this, third, we are stubborn. We want to do things our way. And he says, if I've learned anything from teaching God's word, it's that people are stubborn. You can tell them the same truth over and over, but they often require a harsh reality check before they realize how far they have wandered. He says, we're stubborn. We are like sheep. Well, as we study John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21 today, let's keep in mind why Jesus is the good shepherd. And the bottom line is that we are like sheep, and sheep need a shepherd. And that's the title of today's message. We'll begin in John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus is speaking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. And right off in verse 1, he says something here uh, that is apparently controversial. I didn't have any idea that it would be. Some commentators do not connect the beginning of chapter 10 with the end of chapter 9. And I don't see that myself. I don't know why they would assume that there's a break there. Maybe some you know, Greek grammatical thing that I don't understand what's going on here. I think that Jesus is continuing to reply to the Pharisees who took offense at Jesus' statement that we read last week. That they were blind and in sin because they claimed to have clear spiritual vision, but it was based on their own teachings. And for those Pharisees as well as for anyone else in first century Jerusalem and Judea, there was no need for Jesus to explain the imagery of the sheepfold. But you and I, maybe so. We, we think in terms of barns and fenced-in field, but the sheepfold was something a little different. And here's a, a picture of one. The sheepfold was a place of security, not a place for intruders, 
And so such a sheepfold would likely have been either a circular, like this one, or a square enclosure, probably constructed like a high stone fence or wall, and perhaps topped with vines or something else that would make it more difficult to get over the top. The entrance would have been the only break in the wall, and you can see that uh, depicted there. And once the sheep were safely inside at night, uh, the watchman slash guard, who was either a servant or perhaps even the shepherd himself, maybe an assistant shepherd, would lie down across the opening and serve both as the protector for the sheep and as a gate to the sheepfold. Unless an intruder was willing to confront the watchman, the only way into the sheepfold was to climb the wall. And you say, well, that doesn't look too tough. Well, that's just, you know, one that we found the ruins of. We don't know what other things there might have been to make that more difficult. But no matter how tough or how easy it would have been, it's not a legitimate way, is the point. To go over the wall, if you were going over the wall, it meant you had no business being there. You didn't belong. Those weren't your sheep. Sometimes a cave or natural rock shelter would be converted to a sheepfold. This one was found, I think, not far from Bethlehem. The point Jesus was making with the Pharisees is that they were not entering the kingdom of heaven by the only legitimate way there was to get there. And that made them like thieves and robbers who were trying to take the sheep from the true shepherd. Recall back in chapter 9, the Jewish leaders had cast out of the synagogue the blind man who Jesus healed, and they cast him out for nothing more than claiming that Jesus had come from God. He wouldn't, he wouldn't back up on that statement. He wouldn't renounce that statement. So they cast him out of the synagogue. These people had appointed themselves as the lords and judges of the Jewish people. But in fact, they were false shepherds. The ones described here by Jesus as thieves and robbers, I think, is the application. But the true shepherd, the true shepherd comes in by the door because that's the legitimate way. He comes in by the door to the sheepfold and he calls his sheep by name. There are a lot of things implied in that. This is an expression of authority. It's an expression of legitimacy. It's an expression of true ownership. The true shepherd simply belongs. And see, Jesus' listeners didn't need this explained. They were very familiar with the situation Jesus described. And Jesus uses this familiar imagery to prepare his listeners for the two I am statements that he's about to make about himself here in the next couple sections. To me, though, one of the most interesting aspects, aspects of this analogy is that the sheep recognize the voice of the true shepherd. Now, here's how this works. and We, we wouldn't do it this way because everybody's got their own land and everybody's got their own sheep and everybody's got their own pen and all that. So we wouldn't do it this way. But for those people, the custom of the time was for several different flocks of sheep, each belonging to a different shepherd, to be herded into the same sheepfold at night. In the morning, the shepherds would come to take their sheep out of the sheepfold to take them off to graze and to water them you know, in the field. But the sheep had been penned up together in one big flock. So how will the shepherds separate them? And you know how we... We do it. We, for animals, we use ear tags and we use branding or we use you know, implanted microchips. Well, they didn't have those things. So how are they going to separate them out? Well, the first shepherd would go to the door of the sheepfold and he would simply call out for his sheep. He might also sing to them like shepherds would sometimes sing to their sheep in the field. And the sheep belonging to that shepherd would know his voice and they would come running to the door of the sheepfold. 
The other sheep, not recognizing his voice, would move to the far end of the sheepfold. They, they get away because they don't recognize him. Once the first shepherd left with his sheep, another shepherd would come to the door and call for his sheep, and they would repeat that process until all the sheep were out of the fold. And at that point, the shepherd would lead his sheep to pasture and to water until evening came and it was time to return to the sheepfold. Beautiful imagery. Wonderful picture. We're sitting here going, we get it. These people didn't. They understood what he was talking about. It says in verse 6, the people didn't understand what Jesus was saying. It's not that they didn't understand the technical nature of how sheep and shepherds and sheepfolds work. They understood all that. What they didn't understand was the application of the things Jesus said. They knew he was speaking to them in an analogy. They knew he was using this as an illustration, but they didn't know for what yet. They didn't understand the application. And Jesus is going to explain that application here in the next two, sec next two sections. That takes us to verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here in verse 7, we find the third I am statement made by Jesus in the Gospel of John that has a complement or a predicate nominative for those of you that are students of English, right? Predicate nominative. You thought it wouldn't come up in the sermon. It came up in the sermon. You need to know this stuff, right? We saw the one place where Jesus just said, I am, but there's no compliment there. What I mean by a compliment is, uh, it comes after this state of being verb, it's a noun, and it renames the subject. Okay, we've had a couple of these already. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Back in chapter 8, Jesus, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. The significance here seems to be twofold. And I think there's a primary and a secondary interpretation of this claim of Jesus. The secondary interpretation, the less important one even, is that Jesus is the door that provides safety and security, protection against thieves and robbers, as well as the wolves that he's going to mention here in the next section. But the primary interpretation is that Jesus is the only door like the sheepfold, has only one entrance. He, a limited, unique entryway into the realm of salvation. In John chapter 14, when we get there, we will hear Jesus say it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We've said it before. Jesus claims about salvation and the nature of Christianity and the things that it, it professes are exclusive. Think about what he said there again that we're going to hear in John chapter 14. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There isn't any other way. Not through Buddha, not through Muhammad, not through Confucius, not through Joseph Smith, not even through Abraham or Moses. Only through Jesus may anyone come to God and have fellowship with him. And what we're talking about is salvation. Jesus said, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Now, here's one place 
where the analogy differs greatly from the reality. Because what does it mean for a sheep to be saved, right? I mean, it might mean nothing more than having all the grass and water any sheep could ever need, being kept safe from predators and thieves, and having the shepherd always there to lead the sheep when they needed him. And while there are parallels there, for people, salvation is much more significant. Salvation begins with the forgiveness of sin. And that's certainly a much greater blessing than any physical thing that we could ever receive. But salvation is more than that. Forgiveness or justification removes from us the penalty of sin. And that's a great thing. But if that were all salvation was, then we would still be weak and helpless, held down by the chains of our sin, unable to escape our past conduct and choices. But when we enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we are also granted the blessing of regeneration. Now, even as sin has corrupted us and has damaged the image of God that is in us, salvation brings to us a restoration of that image. It allows us to be free from sin's control. Now, regeneration begins... At our baptism, when we receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But it is not the water of baptism that regenerates. Don't mistake that. Regeneration is the working of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit as He lives in us. And regeneration is not an instantaneous act either. It is a process that extends throughout the rest of our earthly lives. If you're a Christian now, you're in that process of regeneration. You're in the process of having God's image as He created it in you restored. You're in the process of being uh, strengthened so that you can overcome the power of sin. Before we became Christians, we were unable to obey either God's will or the commandments of His Word. But because salvation also produces regeneration, after we become Christians, we can obey God's will. And we can keep His command. And that regeneration will be complete when Christ returns. And the transformation spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15.52 will take place. It says in a moment, we will be changed I quote it often, but there's, it's such an important verse as it relates to salvation. I just want to say this. Acts 4.12 says about Jesus, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. When we're talking about salvation, we have to recognize that. There's not some alternate path. There's not some equally valid but different way to get to God and to what He wants for us in our lives. The only way to do that is through Jesus. One other aspect of the salvation which is found only in Jesus is that it gives us life. Jesus describes that life here in verse 10 as abundant life, or your translation might say life to the full. In Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Scripture called The Message, he puts it this way, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. There are two aspects to this abundant life that salvation in Christ brings. And one aspect has to do with our earthly lives. For Christians here on earth, abundant life doesn't mean life without hardship or without pain or without suffering. All those things are guaranteed to enter the life 
of the Christian. No, in this life, abundant life has much more to do with the quality of our lives regardless of our external circumstances. Abundant life for Christians now means being able to have joy in spite of hardship or pain or suffering. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There's more to it than that, but that's one thing. But the second aspect of abundant life, the other facet of it, you might say, has to do with our lives after this life. We usually call it eternal life. And we mean the life that we have in heaven in the presence of God. Jesus has come so that we might have abundant life, both now and in eternity with him. Let's go to verse 11. I am the good shepherd. This is still Jesus speaking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And again, I think uh, verse 21 indicates that we are still on the heels of that circumstance that occurred in chapter 9, the healing of the man who had been born blind. So, in John 10, 11, we have the fourth I am statement of Jesus concerning himself that we find in John's gospel. Continuing the analogy, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And now one aspect of Jesus as the good shepherd is that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Language that we hear back in the Old Testament when God was telling the, the people to be strong and courageous, enter the land and, and go and occupy the land. And he says, and I will be with you. I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. Well, Jesus makes that promise as well. Uh, you can read Matthew chapter 28 uh, toward the end of the chapter if you want to see that, where he says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, right? Jesus uses the illustration of how a hired hand and an actual shepherd are different. And you probably more familiar with this kind of thing maybe than you were with some of the sheep uh, information that he gave before. The hired hand is just doing a job. But the good shepherd is taking care of what belongs to him, taking care of his own. The hired hand is there for whatever he can get. He's just there for his wages. The good shepherd is there giving all that he has. The hired hand runs away when danger comes. The good shepherd puts himself between the danger and his sheep. The hired hand thinks only of, him, only of himself, while the good shepherd puts the welfare of his sheep first. Now one statement from this passage that has received much attention and has been interpreted in many different ways is what Jesus says in verse 16. When he said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. 
you may have heard this discussed in some way and, and particular meaning applied to it. Some scholars see this as a reference to Jews who had been scattered outside of Palestine. Others say that Jesus was speaking about the Samaritan, other sheep, not of this fold. They're not exactly Jews, but uh, you know they have share some of the ancestry with, with the Jews. Uh, the Mormon Church teaches that Jesus was referring to people living in North America at that time, to whom Jesus would personally appear and speak at some point after his crucifixion and probably after his ascension into heaven. That's uh, an interpretation. I, I didn't say it was one I agree with, but it is an interpretation. Here's what I think. The most logical conclusion about these other sheep is that Jesus was referring to the Gentiles who would hear the gospel and become Christians. Because the people he's speaking to now are all Jews. When the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, all those first Christians were Jews. The, the, the Messiah was sent to the Jewish people under Jewish, rule, uh, Jewish law and to fulfill the old covenant that God had given to the Jewish people. But then there would come a time when the Gentiles could be incorporated in. The rest of verse 16 says, All of the sheep, says of all of the sheep belonging to the Good Shepherd, that they will become one flock with one shepherd. And I don't have it on the screen, but if you, if you don't mind looking it up, Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read verses 11 to 18. If you don't look it up, I'm going to go ahead and read it anyway, but if you want to, that's what I'm going to read here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, because I think it illustrates what Jesus was talking about here. This is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember, you Gentiles, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, that's Jews and Gentiles, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both, yeah, Jews and Gentiles, into one body to God through the cross, by it, the cross, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the, the, the Jews. I'm adding some commentary here as I go along. Verse 18 says, for through him, that's through Jesus, we both, who? Jews and Gentiles, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so this statement here, I have sheep that are not of this fold, I think Ephesians chapter 2 pretty clearly spells it out that he's talking about the Gentiles who would have access then to this new covenant through Christ, just as the Jews have access to this new covenant through Christ. Jesus came as the good shepherd to all who would follow him. And then we get to this part, and you might think I, I, I missed these verses here. The point I've got titled here, the good shepherd gives his life. And I saved this point for the end, because I think in this whole passage, this is the most important part. 
four times in this passage. Just the, the part here that we read, 11 through 18. Four times. Or excuse me, not 11 through 18, 11 through uh, 21, um, 21. Right? Four times in this passage. Jesus says that he, the good shepherd, lays down his life for his sheep. He says that four times. Now there are three things about Jesus laying down his life that I'd like us to consider here. First, he didn't lay down his life to protect the sheep from physical harm. Now he uses that as an analogy. Certainly that's what an actual shepherd does with the actual sheep. But in fact, Jesus laid down his life to protect the sheep from spiritual harm, or more accurately, spiritual death. That's where he's, that's the danger that he stands between. He says, you sheep are headed for this fate. You're going to all experience spiritual death unless I get in the way between you and that, and I take that out of the way. Secondly, Jesus wasn't forced to lay down his life. This wasn't some plan of God gone sideways. This wasn't some mistake or accident. Jesus gave his life willingly for us all so that we could receive forgiveness from our sins, so we could be regenerated, so we could have the abundant life that we mentioned earlier. And there's another thing that has to take place in order for us to benefit here. The third thing about Jesus laying down his life, Jesus didn't lay down his life and then stay dead. In verse 18, he says about his life, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Which I would hope raised a few eyebrows at that point, because nobody else could ever say anything like that. You can't say that. I can't say that. Only Jesus could say that. Here, Jesus predicts his own resurrection, without which we would be lost and dead in our sins, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then you are still dead in your sins. Jesus, the good shepherd, willingly gave his life for his sheep so that the sheep who cannot save themselves could be saved. And so we come back to the three observations we made about sheep in in the beginning and how we are like sheep, right? Sheep need a shepherd because they're prone to wander, getting themselves in all sorts of predicaments. Well, you and I, are prone to wander, following sometimes almost any idea or influence or personality that we encounter. But as the Good Shepherd, Jesus keeps us on the right path that leads to life. And another way we're like sheep is that sheep need a shepherd because they're stubborn. They want to go their own way, even when a better way is placed before them. And you and I I think, can identify with this. You and I are often stubborn, insisting on doing things our own way, even when a clearly better way, the way that Jesus uh, shows us, is offered to us. Well, as the Good Shepherd, Jesus patiently and and consistently continues to offer us His truth until, hopefully, we see the light. Speaking about the time when Jesus will return, when all such opportunities will come to an end. Once Christ returns, we don't have the opportunity to respond any longer to the gospel. But speaking about that time, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, that the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
Even though we're stubborn, Jesus continues to offer us the way that leads us to the life that he offers. And then the third way that we were like sheep. Sheep need a shepherd because they are vulnerable and can't really take care of themselves in spite of what they might think. You and I are vulnerable on a number of levels, but particularly because of our sin. And in our sin, we are headed for destruction. But as the good shepherd, Jesus lays down his life for us to save us from the eternal punishment we deserve and to bring us abundant eternal life instead. You know, many people like to think or would like to think that Jesus didn't have to die for them. They would like to say that they don't need Christ in their lives. They want to be self-sufficient, succeeding or failing on their own, and they think they're going to succeed. They would take offense at the idea that they are like sheep in any way. Some, you may have heard uh, applied in a derisive manner the, the word sheeple. You ever heard the word sheeple? Okay. It's supposed to describe people that just blindly follow without any kind of critical thinking, without any kind of, you know, and it's a derogatory term. People don't recognize how much like sheep all of us really are sometimes. And Isaiah chapter 53 makes it clear that no one is exempt from needing a Savior. As much as we might want to deny it, we might want to think we can do it on our own, we can't. No one is exempt from needing a Savior. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. All of us, I want to say that again because I, I want to emphasize that word. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And that him, this is a, a prophecy out of Isaiah referring to the Messiah that would come and who would die in our place, to take the penalty of our sin on himself so that we don't have to. It's talking about him. And he's saying we all need him. We see it in the New Testament as well. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus, our good shepherd, has taken our iniquity on himself. That's what he was doing on the cross. It wasn't just a, a physical thing happening there. Matter of fact, that wasn't even the primary thing. Jesus on the cross taking the penalty of our sin on himself. So that each and every one of us if, could be saved. Each and every one of us could be saved. Forgiven of our sins, freed from the power of sin, and given abundant eternal life. But here's the problem. That salvation doesn't come to you automatically. You, you don't just receive it because it's there. You can't receive it without asking for it. Thankfully... God is faithful. So that when you finally understand your need for His salvation, when you finally humble yourself enough to ask Him for His salvation, His answer is yes. And if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I have these questions for you. Have you finally understood your need for God's salvation? Do you recognize that His salvation is offered to you only 
through faith in Jesus Christ. There's not some other path. There's not some way of wisdom. There's not some philosophy that that we can follow that's going to lead us to that kind of salvation. Only through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you recognize that God has offered His salvation to you only in that way? Are you humble enough to let go of living life your way? Are you humble enough to repent of your sins so that you can receive the salvation that is offered to you? If you would say yes to these things, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.